We're not always good at recognising people's service for God in the church. Perhaps someone teaches Sabbath school in the church for years, uh, but their preparation and work each week are simply taken for granted. Or someone else cleans the church every week uh, and the only time anyone ever comments is when they miss a bit. Or someone leads the singing every week and one day someone who has never thanked them for doing it gives off to them because they pitched a psalm too high. And the natural human reaction to, to not receiving any recognition for what we do, uh, for the natural human reaction to, be, to being criticised and never thanked is to say, well fine, I'm not doing it anymore. And you hear that all the time in the world. You hear it with a football club or whatever. Fine then, I'm not doing it anymore. But of course in the church, we're not actually doing what we're doing for other people. Uh, at least not primarily. It is true that we have the command through love, serve one another. That is a command for every Christian to be serving one another in love. But ultimately our service is for God. And as Jesus puts it, when you have done all that you were commanded, say we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. And yet, at the same time, all over the Bible we have people who are recognised for their service to God. And that brings us to our first point this evening which is that your service to the king is not overlooked. Your service to the king is not overlooked. All over the Bible, as I say, we have people who are recognised for their service to God. Jesus himself said about the woman who anointed him in Matthew 26, Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Paul writes to the church in Rome and says, Greet Mary who worked hard for you. He tells them, Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother who has been a mother to me as well. He writes to Timothy and says, May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. Now we might think that when it came to the letters of Paul that were actually going to be recorded for all time as scripture. Uh, Paul wrote other letters, they, they weren't all uh, inspired, they weren't all uh, recorded forever in scripture. But we think that, that the letters that were going to make it into the Bible, that they wouldn't contain these references to people that we, we've never heard of and we don't know anything else about. But it's as if Paul cannot write uh, to churches without highlighting some of the people who are serving away in them. It's a beautiful thing. And the fact that he recognises individuals and families, the fact that he appoints them out, uh, and the, the fact that it's recorded for us, is surely meant to be an example to us. That if God himself wants to point out the faithful service of some of his people, we should do the same. And if your service to God is wrongly overlooked by other people, well, don't let that consume you. 
but rather take comfort that your service isn't overlooked by God. And that on the last day, your service will be seen by all. Theodore Davis puts it beautifully when he says that maybe the reason the Bible loves lists is because God never tires of naming the names of his people. Maybe we'd rather there were fewer lists in Scripture. But it's a little reminder that God never tires of naming his people by name. God knows us by name. And we, we have yet another example of that in the second last chapter here of Second Samuel. This list in front of us contains the names of David's mighty men, as are called in verse 8, or his chief men, as are called in verse 13. They're a bit like Navy SEALs. They're David's most trusted, most valiant warriors. There's a group of around 30 of them, with three in particular singled out as the most trusted of the three. Just like with Jesus' disciples, you have 12, but among the 12, you have the three closest disciples, Peter, James, and John. And the comparison to Jesus is an important one. David was God's covenant king. And so to fight for David was to fight for the kingdom of God in the world. Just like we do today, though not with sword or spear, but with the armour of God, the sword of the Spirit, the belt of truth, and so on. As we fight sin, and as we take the gospel out into the world. And Jesus doesn't overlook the work of his servants. He said to his disciples, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. And in the meantime, we're called to serve him faithfully, even though the day we receive that reward may be very far in the future. One thing we need to remember about the people who served David in this chapter is that they did so at a time when serving him was far from the easy option. I've said a number of times in these final chapters of 2 Samuel that they aren't necessarily in chronological order. Just because they come at the end of the book doesn't mean they come at the end of David's life. And we see that clearly here in verse 13. Where is David in verse 13? Well, he's at the cave of Adullam. And when was David living in the cave of Adullam? Well, it's way back in 1 Samuel 22 when Saul was still king. David had been anointed king by Samuel at that point. He was God's choice for king, but he wasn't yet on the throne. He wasn't yet publicly recognised as king. And we're in a similar position today. Jesus is king. But most people don't recognise that. And yet it is now that we're called to serve him. One day Jesus will split the skies and return. Every eye will see him. But it will be too late to start serving him then. Rather what will count is whether we served him when his cause wasn't popular. And so I trust that right from the beginning tonight, this sermon will be an encouragement for you to keep serving him. 
even when his cause is unpopular. And in particular, I want to highlight from these verses three situations that you might find yourself in where you might need some encouragement to keep going. And so having seen, firstly, that your service to the king is not overlooked, we want to look at three situations in the chapter where the temptation to throw in the towel could be overwhelming. We're going to look at two today and one next Lord's Day evening, God willing. And those three potentially discouraging situations are when a particular area of service feels like a, like a waste, whether it's a waste of energy or a waste of your gifts. The second one is when you're serving in an unglamorous situation. And then the one that we'll focus on next week, when you're left serving on your own. I wonder, do any of those scenarios feel quite close to home? Do you feel like you are wasting or have wasted your energy? Do you think that the place you're called to serve God isn't the ideal place to serve God? If only I, I could have served God somewhere else. And do you ever think, I, I could just do with a bit of help? It can be hard to serve when any one of those three is true. Any one of them brings with them a high potential for discouragement. But if two or even all three of them seem to be true, it can be a real toxic mix. And so the first of the three situations we want to look at under our second heading tonight is, is when it feels like a waste. So, so secondly tonight, your service to the king is not overlooked even when it feels like a waste. Probably the most well known of the events recorded in this chapter is in verses 14 to 17. Where David says, oh that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. What was behind David's desire? Well, surely can't have been that there wasn't any water where he was. First Samuel 22 tells us that there were 400 men with him in the cave of Adullam. There's no situation that lack of water was a problem. Was it just that the water in the well in Bethlehem tasted better? It, it might have been. Um, the last time I was in Ireland, I was dismayed to find that my favourite soft drink, Club Orange, had, had, had finally caved into the sugar tax after standing firm for years. It used to have 48% of sugar in a can. It's down to 13%. Uh, I, I did go on a little mission into Donegal to see if they were still selling the original recipe south of the border, but sadly not. Some have suggested that, that what really lay behind David's request was a desire that Bethlehem, the city of his birth, be taken out of Philistine hands. So, so it was a noble desire here. He, he was longing for the day when the Philistines wouldn't uh, be in charge of Bethlehem. To be able to go freely into Bethlehem and drink water from its well would mean that Bethlehem had been liberated from the Philistines. Maybe someone said during lockdown, I just wish I could go on a drive to Port Patrick. 
and it might have been more a comment on wishing that lockdown was over rather than, than saying that the one place in all the world that they wanted to go to was Port Patrick. But anyway, if that is the, the right interpretation, then three of the chief men overhear David and they take him literally. And they go and break through the Philistine camp and get water and bring it back to David. And when he realises what they've done, and that they've risked their lives to get it for him. He won't drink it. He sees it as blood water because of what they've put on the line to get it for him. Some old commentators such as St. Augustine have seen David's longing for this water as an uncontrolled desire, as a sinful desire. And it's only when his men risk their lives to get it for him that he snaps out of it. And he comes to his senses and dedicates the water to God. But whatever the reason for his desire, his people's service is precious to him. We sang Psalm 72 earlier. uh, And speaking prophetically of Jesus, it says that the blood of his people is precious in his sight. And it was the same for David. And so what does he do with this precious water? He pours it on the ground. What ingratitude! Imagine you'd risk your life for David and he, and he takes this precious water and he just pours it on the ground. Well, no, it's not ingratitude at all. Rather, he's pouring it out before the Lord. It is not an act of waste, but an act of worship. It's not an act of waste, but an act of worship. Someone has said that he pours it out, not because it is trash, but because it is treasure. It's not trash, but treasure. When all is said and done, the men who've risked their lives have nothing to show for what they've done. And yet a beautiful thing has happened. They've risked their lives for their king. And David himself realises that he is not worthy of it. And he pours it out before the Lord as an act of worship. He pours it out before the only one who is worthy of such an act of devotion. And if you think about it, we don't often have a lot to show for our service to God. Think about how we spend the Lord's Day, how we devote it to Him. Tomorrow is a bank holiday. Some people will spend it decluttering their houses. Others will spend it getting the garden into shape. You can get a lot done when you have a whole day, if you don't have small children. And I'm sure we could all do a lot with a Sunday if we just used it for ourselves. Because what do we have to show after a day of worship and fellowship? We don't have a lot in tangible terms. Someone might look at it and say we're doing the equivalent of pouring water on the ground. But worship is never a waste. Worship is never a waste. And what about that day at home when you get nothing done? For you mothers of young children, a day when you get nothing done, not because you're lazy, but because the small people seem to be plotting against your every attempt to do anything. Maybe you think, well... I've got a degree, I could be doing so much more than this. The the Chancellor of the UK is telling me to go back to work and stop being economically inactive. 
And yet at the end of that apparently unproductive day, those small people are still alive. They know they're safe. They've been disciplined when they've stepped out of line. They've been watching. They've been learning. They've been loved. They've been trained up a little more in the way they should go, as Proverbs 22 says. When what you've done is done for Jesus, whether that's your worship or your unglamorous work for him, the world says, why this waste? The world says, why this waste? But Jesus, do you know what Jesus says? Jesus says, she has done a beautiful thing for me. Serving God when it seems like a waste, it's not a waste. It's precious in his sight. But then thirdly, uh, and our final point this evening, which is the second situation where it would be easy to get discouraged in your service, is when you're serving in an unglamorous situation. So thirdly, and finally, your service to the king is not overlooked, even when you're serving in an unglamorous situation. In 1848, there was a failed Irish nationalist rebellion led by the Young Irelanders. It culminated on the 29th of July in a gunfight, which became known as the Battle of Widow McCormick's Cabbage Patch. One of the rebels was shot dead by the police, another was fatally wounded. But even though it was a matter of life and death, it's hard not to smile at a battle that is named after a cabbage patch. Only in Ireland do we name battles after cabbage patches. And you can imagine children talking today in the playground and says, well, my great-granddad died in World War II. And someone else says, well, my great-great-granddad died in the Battle of Waterloo. Do you really want to be the one who pipes up and says, well, my great-great-great-great-granddad died at the Battle of Widow McCormick's Cabbage Patch. But we're not all called to take on the enemy on glamorous battlefields. As if there is such a thing as a glamorous battlefield anyway. And here in verses 11 and 12, we have a man called Shama who takes his stand in a plot of ground full of lentils. I'm sure there are people we're all looking forward to meeting in heaven. People from the Bible, and great missionaries and so on from church history. But has anyone ever said, I can't wait to meet the guy who defended the lentil field? And yet, lentil fields need defended. And God calls most of his followers to serve him in unglamorous situations. A minister from a different denomination was saying to me at the conference the other week that there are ministers coming out of his church's training college, but there are places in Scotland that they don't want to go. At least that's his opinion, that they don't want to go to rural places or towns that are far away from the big cities. It's part of a wider emphasis, or we might say overemphasis in evangelicalism, on the importance of cities. To use the language of 2 Samuel 23, people don't want to go to lentil fields in the first place. And if they, they find themselves in a lentil field, they don't want to stay there. But lentil fields still need defended. Why? Well, because God's people need fed. And if the lentil field isn't there, they're going to go hungry. Jesus told Peter, feed my sheep. He didn't say only feed my sheep who live in what the world thinks of as significant places. 
Another reason to defend lentil fields is because if you lose them to the Philistines, it's very hard to get them back again. We've been watching on, on the news during the week as British nationals have been evacuated from Sudan. It's brought back memories of when the Americans and, and the British withdrew from Afghanistan in 2021, leaving the people behind to the Taliban. At the time, a retired minister wrote an article entitled Pulling the Plug, and he applied it to the church situation in the UK. He said in that article, All over the country, many little churches are on their last legs. If they close, then we will be abandoning whole communities to something far worse than the Taliban. We will be leaving them to the tender mercies of Satan, sin and secular values, which take people to a lost eternity. The last witness to the Lord Jesus Christ will go out like a light. If you lose a lentil field to the Philistines, it's very hard to reclaim the territory. And the challenge for me and the challenge for you is are we willing to serve God in a lentil field if that is where he calls us to serve him? Would we be more committed to the church if there were more people, a bigger budget, more folk our own age? In verse 11 here, everyone else has fled. Everyone else has abandoned the lentil field, but Shama stood his ground. And when the enemy is growing in strength, and humanly speaking, the prospects are small, people will do that. They'll say, well, I'm just going to stay at home and watch church online. I'm not going to invest my life in a lentil field. What's the point? But Shammah stayed. Either he was going to kill the Philistines or they were going to kill him. But he wasn't moving from that lentil field. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. One thing about small churches is that we lack the resources that bigger churches have. Now, bigger churches also have problems that we don't have, so it's not as if everything's rosy in big churches. But small churches tend to struggle for resources whether in terms of money, whether in terms of people to do stuff, and so on. But down in verse 21, we have a man who didn't have resources. In verse 21, there's a handsome Egyptian who has a spear, and there's one of David's men called Beniah who only has a staff. But does Beniah say, well, he has a spear, I only have a staff, so there's no point? No, he takes what he has. He takes his staff and he goes down and snatches the spear from the Egyptian's hand. And then he kills the Egyptian with his own spear. Just as David had killed Goliath with Goliath's own sword. And just as Jesus at the cross used death itself to defeat death. So no resources. So what? The cattle on a thousand hills belong to our God. So the... The third point tonight, some encouragement for you when you feel like you're serving God in an unglamorous situation. Lentil fields still need defended. And if some of us do need to be the last people standing, well, so be it. So be it. But just in closing tonight, 
A final thing to encourage you to keep going and where we started our whole service this evening is remember who you're serving because you're serving a greater king than David. There's one name on the list of the the 30 or so men that really sticks out, uh, that sticks in the throat a bit almost and that's the very last name on the list, Uriah the Hittite. And maybe as we're reading through the list of unfamiliar names, we have a sudden flash of recognition. We remember that name, but then we remember why we remember that name. He's the one David had killed so that David could steal his wife. David at times took advantage of those serving him. Perhaps those men who went to Bethlehem to get water. Definitely Uriah. But Jesus never does that. He is the greatest king. And unlike David, Jesus doesn't actually need us to fight for him. But he calls us to do so. And he honours us when we answer that call. And to give the last words tonight to Matthew Henry. Christ, the son of David, has his worthies too. Who like David's are influenced by his example fight his battles against the spiritual enemies of his kingdom and in his strength are more than conquerors. Sounds like a pretty good thing to give your life to. Amen. Well, we close tonight with the second last psalm, Psalm 149, page 364. Psalm 149, page 364, tune 76. What is the the starting point for our service? Well, verse 2, it is to joy in our maker and our king. It is in verse 3, to remember that the Lord takes pleasure in all those who are his own. Uh, Your your service for him will be crippled if you think that you have to try and and serve him in order to earn his favour. If you think that, that he doesn't start off by loving you if if you think you have to earn his joy in you if you think you have to earn his delight but that is our starting point he delights in us and as a result verse 4 we take up our swords not physical swords but the swords of the spirit and uh, then in verses 5 and 6 speaking of the nations but we go out not not now to uh, judge and condemn the nations though one day the saints will judge the earth Uh, but that the nations would turn and come and worship our king too. So Psalm 149, uh, page 364, will stand to sing praise.